Aircraft engines are truly dependable. Often spending most of their working hours running at 75% power, the failure rate is remarkably low. But eventually the motor will have to be overhauled. And when it's back under the cowling, there may be some break-in procedures. That's what a pilot was doing one afternoon when inexplicably the engine quit at about 1,000 feet AGL over a densely populated area. We'll hear the incredible story of how the pilot handled that emergency on this episode of I Laughed. I learned about flying from that. Hi everyone and welcome to episode 28 of Flying Magazine's I Learned About Flying From That podcast, brought to you by Avemco. I'm Rob Ryder, your host, and on today's program, we'll meet Brian Lorenz, who was flying his Cessna 180 with a recently overhauled engine, when without warning, it stopped running. His decision not to land where there were people or property left him with only a parking lot and a short road to force land the airplane, and it nearly cost him his life. Brian will tell us the whole story right after this word from the Avemco Aviation Insurance Company. For more than 60 years, Avemco has built its reputation on the kind of personal service only they can provide. Ask one of your flying friends who has Avemco. Better still, how about asking one who's had a claim with Avemco. You'll save on your annual premium just for being an iLaft listener. Call Avemco at 800-338-8705. 800-338-8705. Avemco Aviation Insurance. Coverage personalized for what you fly and how you fly it. Now, I learned about flying from that. Brian Zippy Lorenz is a longtime friend and a longtime pilot. He's known throughout the airshow industry as a behind-the-scenes guy who's the absolute best at coordinating the movement of the performer's airplanes at shows like Oshkosh, Sun and Fun, and many others. Brian Zippy Lorenz, welcome to I Laughed. Uh, nice to see you. Drew, nice to hear from you. How about that? That works for me. For as long as we've known each other, I've never really learned about how you got your start in aviation. How did it begin, Zippy, and how did you work yourself into the position of being the ground coordinator at so many air shows around the country? Well, it started in 1985 at Oshkosh, if you can believe that. The first show I ever worked was Oshkosh. Um, I was working for a company called STS, and they were an avionics company that had handheld transceivers and Lorands. I remember that company. And so I, I started there and I became director of avionics and they said, you better learn to fly if you're going to talk to all these people at the air shows. And so I learned to fly. I went to executive beach craft and learned to fly in a sundowner and worked my way up. And, and then just, just one thing led to another. And I became part of the flight operations crew at Oshkosh and then at sun and fun. And then the local shows here in St. Louis, uh, the County show and the riverfront show, and then started going to other shows because people people saw me at these shows and said, wait a second, can you do this at my show? I said, absolutely. And so it just was one snowballing effect. It just kept on growing and growing and growing. And that's how it all happened. But aviation's not your full-time work. You're a financial guy, right? Yes, insurance and, and financial broker. Yes. 
But your heart has got to be very, very deeply seated in, in flying airplanes and being around aviation people. Well, being with STS for almost six years and being around aviation consistently, constantly, uh, that's where I really wanted to be. But when STS closed its doors um, and I was working, going to go for another job, and I realized that uh, they shoot the steed out from under you. You didn't do anything wrong. And I thought, well, I think I better start working for myself. So that's why I got into the business that I am. My father was in it for 50 years and said, you know, if you want to be your own boss, this is the way to do it. So that's why I did it. Uh, I had some other opportunities that I sometimes regret that I didn't take in aviation, but this is the way it is. You don't look back. And not looking back, you looked forward. What was your first airplane as you as you got your license and, and pursued aviation? Uh, my first one that I bought was a Champ, a Ronca Champ, a 7AC that's converted to a DC, uh, and I still have that airplane. And then the other airplane that I bought was a 180, and that's the one that... Uh, I had the little problem with about 19 months ago. The 180, the Aronka Champ, you're a tailwheel guy from the ground up then, right? Right. I would. I don't have a problem with the nose wheel because like, I learned to fly and I have hundreds of hours of nose wheel, but these became available to me to buy. And I was like, okay, I'll do it. And they were, they, it turned out I bought it from the same person, the Aronka the and the 180 from the same person. Um, uh, the first one was a guy named Bernie Godlove who was at Oshkosh with me and he was a United captain, and he passed away in a, believe it or not, in a 180 aircraft crash with a friend of his. And so his son said, I think you should have one of my dad's airplanes. So he offered me the, the champ, and I said, sure, I'll do that. And so he got it to me at the right price and like whatever. And then his son had the 180, and then one day he said, you know, I and he's an airline captain also with United. And he said, you know, I got kids going to school, whatever. I need to get rid of this other, the 180. Are you interested? And next, you know, boom, I got the 180. So, and you flew it a lot, didn't oh, you? Oh, yes, I did. I flew both of them a lot. Loved it. It was the great little airplanes, just fun to fly and whatnot. I used the 180 to go anything more than a couple hundred miles. And the champ I kept within the zero to 100, 200 miles to fly. Did you find it to be a useful tool with respect to any of your financial business or just with respect to getting to and from air shows you were working? To and from air shows, not for the financial side, no. And you told me that you liked to fly every day. You used to fly a lot. Uh, well, sometimes I'd fly every day if it was a really nice weather and I had nothing going on. And other days I'd have to wait a week or so. But I try to make sure I alternated between the two. And then sometimes if one was on the annual and the other one was not, then, I, of course, I flew the one that was not an annual. And, uh, but when they both were free and out of annual, then I was uh, trying to alternate between the two of them. The Aronka clipped along at what kind of speed? Well, it's an 85 horsepower, so probably 90 to 100, somewhere in that area, depending on if there's no wind situation. Um, it was a good little airplane. I mean, it's, it's being at 7DC, it's got electric start and has a radio and transponder and has uh, 13 gallons in one wing and 13 gallons in another wing. So I had 26 gallons on board with electrical systems. So I, I, it made it nice for me to be able to go in and out of any airport I wanted to go into. That sounds great. Well, 19 months ago is uh, the time frame you mentioned at the time we were recording this. You were taking your 180 up for, was it a pleasure flight one day? Yes. I was just going to... Uh, Put a couple hundred miles on it. I was going to put about two hours on the airplane and come back, but that's not how it happened. Zippy set us up. Tell us what happened that day 
when the engine quit that led to that very nearly fatal crash for you? Uh, it was a Saturday right around noon. Um, the airplane engine had just been rebuilt by my partner of the airplane and an IA. They took the engine completely apart down to the crank, sent everything off to different places to have everything mic'd to make sure it was perfect. And they put it back together. Took them a couple months to do it. And uh, it had eight hours on it at this point. And as we've been told that you don't do anything adjusting power or anything like that for the first 10 hours. So there was, it had eight hours on. I thought, you know something, I think I'll fly this for two hours and get it up to 10 hours where then we can start doing touch and goes. So it was Saturday, right around noon. It was about a 90-degree day in August and uh, took off out of Creedcourt Airport, which is a great private airport, great museums and 110 hangars on the place. And there's probably 400 airplanes on the, the airport. Anyway, I took wow. off and headed south. And four minutes into the flight, and I was only 1,000 feet off the ground, 1,500 MSL, being 1,000 feet above whatever. I was only in the air for four minutes. The engine quit. I looked to the south, and I saw that there's nothing but buildings and humanity that way. East and west were the same way. I was over a busy street and at noon, and there was a stoplight. There's cars everywhere. And uh, I made a quick decision that with full fuel on board, I can't go south. I can't go east or west. So I turned back to the north, thinking I could find a field back there. And, of course, ran into more homes and condominiums and cell towers and fences and trees. And as I'm coming down, keeping my nose down to keep it flying, I saw a parking lot and I saw a road and I said, that's it. And I circled around, missed the condominiums, came down and saw that the road had a 90 degree turn coming in, coming up to it and uh, trees. And so I just said, that's it. I pulled full flaps. I did the emergency procedures, popped the door, make sure I didn't get beer canned in and pulled back on the yoke and slammed it down onto that road. Slid for about 100 feet, destroyed the airplane, and there was a policeman having lunch in the parking lot. So he comes running up, and uh, he's trying to get me out of the airplane. I had to show him how to undo my safety belt, and he pulled what, me. Away. What kind of safety belt did you have? It was uh, the guy who I bought it from. He put in a, an a airline where you, you click them in, and you got to turn it to turn the knob to get everything to release. And he thought it was a push button. He kept on pushing on it. And I said, no, you got to turn it. And so he uh, turned it and he pulled me away because fuel was leaking all over the place. And he thought for sure a fire was on its way. And uh, so, which did not happen, luckily. And they pulled me out. And, and after that, uh, once the ambulance got there, uh, I don't remember much because they started sticking needles in me all over the place and pumped me full of uh, sedatives and pain relief, painkillers and all this other kind of stuff. And that's where my memory kind of goes blank because I'm not real good with having uh, all that stuff put in me. And I'm also petrified of needles. So that was really hard for me to, to, to handle. So anyway, that's what happened. And took me to the hospital. I was in the ICU for 10 days and then uh, rehabilitation for 11. And then we went home and the rest is history. And you're now walking five miles a day to strengthen your body and get yourself back into shape. I, I started doing that for a couple of reasons. Uh, that was one, yeah, to strengthen my back because they, they, they fused my back from T12 down to L5. And uh, they said, you got, you're you very weak. And I said, the heck with that. I, no pain, no gain. So I forced myself to get up and 
and walk the miles that I used to do before the accident. And that's the best thing I ever did because that strengthened my back and also gives my cha- my head a chance to get clear and think about what's going on. I mean, you go through all that stuff in the hospital um, and all the drugs they put in you, you want to clear yourself as much as possible. And so that's why I do it. And also it's, uh, I'm also a person that likes sports and I like to be very active. I like to be, you know, my body's a temple, so to speak. I love to do a lot of exercise, so that's why I do it. So up every morning at 5.30, the dog and I get out to a place where there's the, we have this trail, and we do it every day. Rain, sleet, or snow, it doesn't matter. We're there. You are an inspiration, Zippy, I tell you that. Let's go back now to the point at which the air, the engine failed. At You, at that altitude, knew you had a limited amount of time. I assume you went through that aviate, navigate, communicate. But at this point, communication was out. You just needed to aviate and navigate to find that place. What was your best glide speed? Did you get the nose down right away and to get 80 knots or something like that? 65. Got it down to 70 to 65 because I wanted to give myself as much distance as I could. I didn't want to come down too soon. And I was trying to find it. And as I was going back to the north, uh, all of a sudden, I realized that I'm over a very highly populated. I was in a very highly populated area, east, west, north, south. No matter where I went, it was highly populated. And so uh, I had it when I did see the road, I had to do a circle to come back around to try to lose some more altitude. Um, and then at that point, I think I probably stalled it at that point when I pulled back on the yoke with the full flaps and the door open and et cetera. Uh, it came down like a rock. And I had to. I mean, if I kept going straight, we would hit the trees. And the, if I hit the trees, God only knows if the wings would have popped open. And with the fuel catch fire, you know, it would have been pretty ugly. And if I did it any other way, I'm sure I would have hurt somebody and damaged property if I didn't do it this way. So you were lucid. You were not. You were not more. Con- you weren't concerned about yourself so much as you were trying to maintain uh, a gentle turn to turn back toward the field and find a place so you wouldn't hurt anybody on the ground. Correct. That's exactly what I didn't panic. I wasn't upset. I wasn't nervous. I said, "I can do this. I can- I've landed this thing in fields before. I can do this. So there's got to be a field behind me." Unfortunately, there wasn't, and so I had to make do with what I had to do and as they tell you fly the airplane don't don't let it stall on you up above keep pulling back where it's gonna if i kept pulling back and the speed went down the thing would have stalled and that would would have taken me to my death from a thousand feet so you got to fly the airplane to the crash site you control it to the very end and that's what i tried to do when you made that turn you realized as soon as the engine quit uh, were you aware that you would not make it back to the runway because you had gotten far enough away that there was no way you would could get there from a thousand feet AGL. oh no no i was miles away i was i was two, probably 12 15 miles away there's no way i could get back there uh, i was just trying to find a place to put it down i was hoping for a field and uh, and of course there wasn't one and and so i had to make do with what is the closest thing to a field or someplace that's empty or someplace where nobody's going to get hurt and it's and that's it so with nobody around in a small little road to a parking lot is all I could find. I said, that's the best I have. Do you have any idea how many feet above the ground you were when you actually, when the airplane stalled and it hit and slid that hundred or so feet? Uh, I really don't know for sure, but I'm sure it's more like 20 to 30 feet still. And I thought when I pulled back that the tailwheel would come back and hit first and then the mains. I didn't know I was 
slowing. I, I probably had slowed it down to a point where I'm not looking at the gauges anymore. I'm looking out that the windshield trying to figure out where am I going to go? How am I going to get these wheels down? Am I going to get the wheels on the both wheels on the road or one side, one wheel's going to be in the grass and one's going to be on the road. Uh, I was doing that. I was trying to calculate this and try to make it. So it's the best way for me to get it down without hurting. Were you, were you upwind or downwind at that point? Were, yeah, do, were, yeah. were the winds a factor? No, the winds were not affected that day. It was just a very warm day. If it was any wind at all, it was probably four or five knots. That was it. And when you impacted and the policeman who arrived on the scene tried to get you out, you were still aware of everything that was going on. Were you in shock? Did you feel the pain? Or, or were you able to be lucid enough, as you said, to tell him to turn it rather than, rather than uh, try to push the button to un- unhook the belt? I wasn't knocked out. I was responsive. I was still there, but I was in shock. There's no question about that. I was in total shock. The impact probably shook me up pretty good. Um, And then when he pulled me away, I was still lucid to know what was going on. But he was right there in the parking lot having lunch. So he he was, you know, hundreds of feet away and he came running up. uh, But then the ambulance got there right away because it was only a mile away. so once they got me in the ambulance, that's where all my memory starts going blank because they started sticking needles in me, which, of course, I told you, I'm petrified of needles. And that, that I was just trying to struggle, telling them not to stick needles in me. And they said they had to. And next you know, they're putting fentanyl in me and morphine and all this other kind of stuff. At that point, my memory just shot craps at that point. I was They just had me all drugged up. And I'm not really good with drugs. So they, <laughs> they kind of changed my attitude of the world at that point. I bet it did. When you were in the ICU, did they keep you in a coma for a while? Um, I don't know that because the, 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 in the emergency room, I don't remember anything there, even though they were asking me questions and I was just blurting something out. I probably could have told them exactly where Jimmy Hoffa was buried, for that matter. Uh, <laughs> I, I had no idea what was going on. They, they, they were sticking me with so many needles, and I'm, like I said, and that makes it very hard. My mind was trying to tell my body to run, but my body couldn't run, and, my, and they were just sticking me with stuff, and they, were, and they, you know, they had me in the emergency room, and uh, they cut your clothes off of you, and they don't move you because they're afraid of doing any more damage to you because they're not sure where the damage is, and I can't really say what's really going on since I'm so drugged up. And then uh, to answer your question, um, it's probably after the fifth or sixth day that I started coming to an understanding after they did the operations on me, on my back and my arm, um, that I started realizing what was going on because they slowed down on the drugs at that point. So, so it broke your arm as well? Uh, my ulna bone got shattered and my radius bone got separated from the humerus. And so uh, I have metal in my arm trying to get the ulna bone to heal. And it's still there. It's about 70% healed. And the prosthesis they put into my radius to connect my radius to my humerus bone is slipping. So I got to go, they got to go back in and I'm going to a orthopedic doctor and not going to a trauma center ever again. That was, they just kind of, it's like a bandaid and, and tongue depressor. They just put you in there and try to fix you as fast as possible. And then they, it's like a factory. So uh, I've already had my arm redone once by the orthopedic that straightened out. I had a staph infection in there. And the oh, person boy. that did it in the trauma center did not do a really good job. And so my orthopedic had to do it and healing. And I got to take antibiotics, antibiotics over a year. And so, uh, cause the staph infection and they had a pick line in me, if you know what that is. 
Oh, yes, I do. Yeah. yeah and I had to take vancomycin at 8 o'clock in the morning and 8 o'clock at night for six weeks straight to kill the staph infection. So it was real. That wasn't a whole lot of fun. I broke my sternum, my ribs, but those, those heal on their own. Um, and then, of course, my back. I, I burst uh, L3, and so they fused, confused the back. You're a walking miracle, my friend. Tell you what, let's take a break, and then I want to come back, and let's find out about some of the things you learned about flying from that because you started to touch on it already, and we want to go a little deeper into that. We'll be right back. The folks at Avemco Insurance have been passionate about pilot safety for over 60 years. That's why they sponsor the FAA's Fast Team Wings program and support I learned about flying from that. Avemco even rewards safe pilots with reduced premiums. You can instantly save 5% just for listening to I Laughed. Call 800-338-8705 today or visit avemco.com slash flying and tell them you're a listener. Now, back to I Laughed. We're back with Brian Zippy Lorenz, who survived a forced landing on a very short hunk of road uh, when he had an engine failure in his Cessna 180, and he tried successfully to avoid hurting anybody on the ground and, or damaging any property on the ground, only himself and the airplane. But I know that, uh, Brian, you learned some incredible lessons about flying from that, didn't you? Well, I did, but I had a lot of lessons beforehand that really helped me to make that decision and make the uh, crash as least damaging as possible because of all the people that I've worked with in the years of the air shows. I mean, we can go start with Bob Hoover all the way down to the aerobatic pilots that I deal with every year at all the different air shows and sit and talk with them. And we talk about crashes that we hear about and who's gone, which way and what's happened. And, um, and they've all made it very clear what they think is the best way to do it. And I've listened to all these years of this and I, and I practice it. I put it into use finally, and which is like Bob Hoover always said, fly the airplane to the crash. Don't let the airplane take you there. You take it there. You do it, everything. You control it to the very last second. And so that's what I did. I controlled it till I, it was out of my hands at that point. But at that, at that point, I wasn't, you know, very high, wasn't going very fast, and there was nobody around that I could hurt. You, you are a testament to the value of hangar flying because and even afterwards, you got a call from Sean D. Tucker? That is true. John Tell me about that call. Well, quite a few other people called also the performers. I mean, there's a list as long as your leg, but Sean did, I, I'll just, he was the first one to call. And, uh, and he, the first thing he said to me, he says, you're one of us. You proved it. You did exactly what we would have done, exactly what we talk about, what we preach about, and you did it. And he said, and that's really kind of nice to hear him say that, that here I did exactly what he would have done. He said, I've crashed three times. And he said, you, you know, I'm still here. And he says, look, you're still here. You did exactly what you were supposed to do. You took the airplane, you controlled it, you owned it. You truly owned what was going to happen, and you didn't give up. And that's, uh, that's exactly what I did. What other lessons about flying did you learn? Well, I don't know if I learned any more lessons, Rob, or not. I just think that all the years that I've been flying is I pay attention. You know, I get the NTSB reporter, NTSB reporter every month, and I read these things. I watch on uh, Smithsonian all the time, air disasters. I, I pay attention to these, and half the time I can predict what happened 
ahead of time because now all the times I've been paying attention uh, and reading things uh, at air shows, talking to people all the time about uh, this person or that person. What what would you do in this situation? That, that kind of thing. And they we, we talk about it. I, I'm not afraid to learn and talk about things that can actually happen that are not pleasant. And I want to know if I was in that position, what would I do and how would I handle it? And that's by talking to these people that have thousands of hours. They're flying these aerobatic airplanes, which for 10 to 15 minutes, uh, you know, they're putting on a show with it, but uh, you know, anything can happen. And what would they do? Uh, talking to Kirby Chambliss, you know, Kirby said, well, he had a crash doing a, a race with a uh, Red Bull. And he went in the water and, you know, he, sh- he shows me a scar on the top of his head. He said, man, I was knocked out. They, the divers went and got me. And I said, how did you handle that? And he would tell, he'd tell me, I said, okay, if I ever get in that situation, I'm going to be thinking the same way. But one thing you've got to remember, you don't panic and you just control and say, I can do this. And that's what I did. That I never panicked on that coming down. I never thought about what was going to happen to me. I never thought I couldn't do it. I said, I can do this. I can get to find a place to put this down. And I did. So you don't give up. You don't get, you control it, you own it. And you think about all the, the ability that you have and you use it. Wow. Great lessons. Let me ask one final question before we wrap it up. Are you flying again yet? I am. Uh, my partner's a CFII. And so with him, uh, fly with him and our airport has a lot of CFIs and double I's on board. So I fly with them. I went ahead and this past June went ahead and hit a BFR because I wanted to make sure I was still sharp. And the guy said, you haven't lost a thing. You can, you can fly with me anytime you want. So I did that on my own and I probably will do it each year just to keep myself sharp and do a BFR again every June until uh, everything gets rectified and I get my medical straightened out and I'm back to flying on my own. Brian, thanks for sharing your story. Thank you for the lessons that you taught us and shared with us. And I look forward to seeing you at air shows all over the country this season. Thank you very much. Brian's on the mend and hopes to have his medical restored very soon. But the lessons that he taught us are so important to remember in the very unlikely event an engine failure occurs. Don't panic. Don't give up. And as the legendary R.A. Bob Hoover said, if you're faced with a forced landing, fly the thing as far into the crash as possible. Good words for all of us. I hope that the stories here on I Laughed and the lessons learned are meaningful to you. And if you've got a story that taught you some good lessons, send your story to me, rob at flying.media, and we'll take a look at it. The executive producer of iLaft is Lisa DeFries. Julie Boatman is the editor-in-chief of Flying Magazine. iLaft is available wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can follow Flying Magazine on Facebook or Instagram, where we'll post new episodes so everyone can hear the first-hand accounts of the flying lessons that sometimes only experience can teach. For Avemco Aviation Insurance and Flying Magazine, fueling the passion for flight since 1927. I'm Rob Ryder. Catch you next time on I Learned About Flying From That.